Rick Warren said that learning to love unselfishly is not an easy task. It runs counter to our self-centered nature. We understand that we're getting into a definition of what love is all about because we live in a culture and a society that does not understand true love. They talk about love, they write songs about love, they try to describe it in many different ways, but they really don't understand love because you really never will know what love is about until you know Jesus Christ. Without him there is no love. And the love that you will possess will not be true, selfless, self-sacrificial love. Last week we talked about the greatest enemy to love was selfishness. And we understand that. In the midst of all of that, let's realize that it's not the only enemy to love. Sometimes when we're selfish, we forget that love gives away constantly, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us so aptly. The church in Corinth thought they knew what love was. They talked about it a lot. In fact, they even referred to their gathering for a meal after worship as a love feast. Yet the love feast had the higher socioeconomic group eating in one room and the poor people eating in another. That, by definition, is a lack of love. We need to realize that love goes far beyond what our human expectations can ever be. Love has to come from God because we truly don't understand how to love and what love is. But there's another enemy that we have to watch out for, a deadly enemy that that sometimes in life will get us in so much trouble yet we have good intentions. And and that enemy is simply this, control. We want to control the situation when we feel like we're aptly named the person to do that. We feel like we have been trained in the right way and we've been down those roads and, and, and up over those valleys and gone through that difficult time. We can help someone else. But the reality is, no matter how long you've lived, that doesn't mean that you've become an expert about anything other than living. As I shared with someone the other day, a question was once asked of a person that's well past their octogenarian state, and someone looked at him and says, what did you do to live so long? And they said, I kept breathing. And that's true. That's all you have to do to live. But some people believe the credentials in life give them the ability to give other people advice. The reality is we pass a certain situation in life only once. You can only be 20 once or 30 once or 40 once. And once we pass through that, we move on. And that does not mean that we've learned a lesson from that. So let's say something about control and the deadly danger we can have with that. Love's the greatest thing of all. And without love, we do not understand who Christ is. The one consistent way that people know you're a Christian is in the evidence of how you love others and you love the brethren. What do you think about your fellow church members? Look around you. Do you care about them? Do you love them? Are you willing to lay down your, your own expertise and your own understanding of life and listen to them and learn from them? I've been amazed at the people that I've learned the most from have been the people that were probably the last to, to express their competence in doing that. But I've had some powerful truths thrown at me that have changed my life when I listen to people that were simply followers of Christ and not people seeking for a great position in the kingdom of God. 
I've always said that when we get to heaven and we see those closest to the throne of God, there will not be the named people in this world that we recognize. They'll be the humble, quiet, lovers of what Christ loved, givers of all that they had. They'll be the ones who gave their last nickel, the widows that gave it all away. It won't, it won't be the multi-gazillionaires that built buildings, but it'll be the ones who gave their last meal so that someone else could continue to do the work of Christ that will be acknowledged. Because Jesus had a way of seeing that and understanding that. Sacrificial love is what it's all about. You know, in, in this passage, it lets us know the importance of a renewed spirit, and it gives us an indication about something that's going on at that time that if you don't listen carefully, you'll miss. The end of this passage in verse 8, it, it says something just so astounding to us because it tells us that, that three of the sign gifts, literally, that predicted who Jesus was as the Messiah, those sign gifts would one day be done away with. And it says that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will dissipate and disappear. Now the reality is they've made a recurrence in the last century and into this. Around the early 1900s, they appeared again uh, on a place called Azusa Street in San Francisco. Uh, there was a, a revival that began, and we saw the evidence of tongue speaking there. And it's happened since then, and we understand that the prophet said that in the latter days, these things would happen. We understand that. But during the apostolic era, that first century after Christ returned home, there were three signs that were given to indicate who he was. And the Apostle Paul was saying that prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away. And they did. In fact, it says after that, it said, the, the next verse in verse 9, it says, When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. And many people struggle with that. They say, what does this mean? Does this mean that, that when Jesus went to heaven, that which is perfect, uh, these things will be done away? Oh, absolutely not. They were still going on after he returned to heaven. The word perfect there is in the neuter gender, meaning what it's referring to is neither male nor female. And there's really only one thing that we can say that is perfect, that is neither male nor female, that's mentioned here, and that is the completed, finished Word of God. It says when, when the Word of God, that which is perfect, you know, uh, is here, that which is in part that we've known will be done away with. And you see, God's Word replaced these things that spoke in the interim time. But what the Apostle Paul is saying, with the absence of prophecies, with the absence of tongues, with the absence of the ability to communicate this supernatural knowledge, when these are gone away, you will still have love. So see to it that love is so powerful there. Love will never pass away. Love is required always. Love is required in everything that we do. Even the hardest task that we ever observe the things that absolutely wring out your last nerve, the thing that makes you most frustrated, there still needs to be a capacity of love overshadowing all that you do. And Here on earth, love will endure. It will help you endure everything that comes along. Everything. If you decide to walk in it, you'll last through everything. 
Nothing will dominate you and destroy you. Jesus looked on those who were crucifying him. And he, as only the son could do, spoke to the father and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the reality is many times when we go through times of suffering or, or, or we, we, we go through times of frustration and anxiety and when people misunderstand us, mistreat us, we're supposed to love them. One of my favorite versions of the Bible is the Amplified Bible because it takes some of the difficulty, difficult words and it, and it extrapolates them in, in terms that maybe we can possibly understand. And 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 in the Amplified Bible says this. Listen very carefully to this. It says, Love endures long and is patient and kind. Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy. It is not boastful or vainglorious does not display itself haughtily. It is not conceited or arrogant or inflated with pride. It is not rude, meaning unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. That means that, that Emily Post would be pleased with your behavior. Love, or God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way, for it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or restful. Think about those three words, touchy, fretful, or restful, unrestful. That is the way many times we get when things don't go our way. And it says it takes no account of evil done to it or pays no attention to a suffered wrong. Sometimes we boil over because we dwell on those wrongs and we get frustrated with them. Sometimes we get wrapped up in what's going on and we forget that God has a purpose for us that's bigger than the moment. And that love is willing to endure because you know the outcome is certain because it's in God's hands. Love endures long and is patient. And endurance is something we don't understand these days. We want everything instant, right away. We don't have to wait for very long. When they say fast food, it ought to be fast food. But in Selma, sometimes it's not fast food. It's slow food. You learn something about patience when you live around other people. And, and we think that somehow the experience we have on a Monday that destroys the rest of our week is the problem. No, it isn't. It's our perspective on that day and how we handle it. Because I remind you of this. When you walk out Monday morning, you begin your day. You're not beginning your day for you. It's not you working toward a retirement or working toward paying off a house or buying a toy or what. Not at all. You are out there representing Jesus Christ and no one else. The world is watching you. They're hurt. They're broken. They're frail. They're resentful. They don't know what really matters. They listen to the news and they believe it, which is a sad thing to do. And they have no hope. They're discouraged. They literally pull in the lot to buy gas, and between the time of pulling in and getting to the pump, it goes up eight cents a gallon. That happened to me the other day. Wow, this is ridiculous. I thought it was bad enough back in the Carter years. It's really getting bad now. But the reality is this. We're not out there just to live our lives. We're out there to display Christ Jesus in his reality, to love others, to show them in our behavior that life is not destroying us 
that we are living through the storm and becoming stronger. And God expects that from us. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says that love suffers long and is kind, that it endures. This, this sounds like a painful experience that you go through. We all go through painful experiences. I had, a, I had a bad experience as a child in a dentist's office, and I love dentists and have many friends that are dentists, but there's something about a dentist that scares me because in a dental, dentist's office, a mistake was made, and I ended up having my right cheek operated on twice because they cut into the muscle by accident. To this day, I can hear the whizzing of that drill in a dentist's office, and I just get sick to my stomach. But you know what? I've learned to appreciate and love the dentists that care for me because it reminds me that they're watching out for my good. I don't see them that way. The dentist I go to now that I will not name, um, but she's a redhead and her last name's Tucker, is wonderful, and she understands my situation. And I love that. And I've learned to have not a negative idea, but a positive idea. And Blair, you of all people working in a dentist's office, you understand that. You have to realize that. Life's going to be difficult. You're going to have problems. You're going to have anxieties. You're going to have these preconceived ideas about situations being unpleasant. But the reality is God will get you through that storm, and he's taking you to that storm for a reason. Because you've got a mission there, and you've got a purpose, and you've got a reason for being there. God wants us to understand that. Now, I want to think with you for a few minutes about something that is very personal and sometimes can be very painful. That that other enemy of love can cohabitate in your heart and your life along with all of the good things that you have there, and it can dominate and even destroy the acts of love that you perform. I like to call it the spirit of Jezebel or the spirit of control. Jezebel was the, was the queen to King Ahab of Israel. And, and, king and as king and queen, they did some good things and they did many terrible things. Jezebel was a king's daughter and a king's wife. Her father was Ethbaal, the king of Tyre. And she was married to Ahab, the king of Israel. She worshipped many foreign gods. She was a very religious woman, but her greatest problem in life was she controlled everybody around her. She manipulated the situation. She felt because of her superior intellect that she had the right to do that. She controlled her husband, her children, every, all of her servants, everyone around her. There was only one person she couldn't control, well, really two. She couldn't control God and his emissary, Elijah. And Elijah taught her a lesson that, that she would never forget because she felt that she could manipulate every situation. I've been in that circumstance before around somebody that was very well-meaning, but in the midst of what they were doing, they were destructive. I've had people look at me and say, I'm only doing this because the Lord is leading me to do it. And then I got fired. I've had people say, well, I prayed about this for a long time, and, and I've decided thus and so. And it had more human instinct in it than it had godly instinct in it. I've actually had someone say this to me many years ago before I entered the ministry. They said, I'm only doing this to help you out. Don't get used to it. There's nothing of God in that because love gives and gives and gives. 
is sacrificial in so many ways. The spirit of Jezebel runs counterintuitive to the love of Christ. It will never fit there. A person obsessed with the spirit presupposes that they know what's best, not just for themselves, but everyone else. They preclude that somehow they can move forward and they can perform acts to straighten you out or the situation. I read the other day a statement that someone said, and, and it's so true, they said, don't presume because you've heard one of side of the story that you know the whole story. But many people will take a part of that and they'll run with it. We were in Hancock's Fabrics one day when I was very young and my mother was talking to a friend there in Atlanta. And this woman was walking through and she was being very persnickety and very judgmental over the things she looked at. And she picked up one piece of cloth and she rolled it out and she said, this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Look at all these loose strings. This wasn't even put together correctly. I would never buy this to cover a sofa. And the very kind and gentle man that ran the shop said, ma'am, if you'll turn it over, you'll see the front of the fabric. And on the other side was one of the most beautiful tapestries I've ever looked at. Perfect in every way. Yet she was looking on the back side without her glasses on and presumed immediately that she knew what was wrong. I learned a lesson from that. The word prejudice is a very powerful word. It's one that, that, that when we hear it, it almost hurts. We wince with pain. And the word is a word that sometimes you don't understand quite like you should. Prejudice doesn't mean that you've formed an opinion. Not at all. It means that you formed an opinion before you had all the information. You have prejudged something before the time of judgment should be there. Prejudice means that you've looked at one side of the situation. I learned early on in, in, in doing marital counseling and going through classes for that in my master's level program that there, when there's a, 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 a marital dispute in something, there are three sides to every story. Not two, three. There's his, his side, her side, then there's the truth somewhere in the middle. And you always have to land on the truth and love both sides. And you can speak the hard truths in love and not alienate that person. You're talking about a, a difficult thing to do. That's tough to do. Learn sometimes in life that we can stay out of an argument and we can still love people. One of the sad truths is this, that many people that have not learned the art of not prejudging tend to alienate themselves from other Christians. Jezebel was not a popular woman. She was a sad woman. She, she presumed that she had arrived in life and that she had the control that she should have. But God taught her a lesson in several ways. Number one, he taught her a lesson in that her husband died and she lived long after that. Long after that. She was the dowager queen for so many years there, serving alongside her sons. And she dominated their lives. And the kingdom fell apart under her leadership because she just knew that she knew what was right. Many times, well-intentioned parents will do the same thing. We used to call them helicopter moms and dads. But the reality is there comes a time in the life of your child, and boy, this is touchy to say, but 
I've been there and I've done that. There comes a time in the life of your child that you have to let go and allow God through His Holy Spirit to teach them something that they never learned from you. You know, the reality is that sometimes the only time we really remember with a very tender place in our heart the words of our parents is after they're gone. And then we can reflect back over that and see and then understand what's going on. I remember one time I told my mother, I said, I feel like all you do is you're a tour guide for guilt trips. Every time I want to do something, you just wreck it. But my mother warned me in her tender and kind way to be careful. And you have to be careful because in life sometimes you make those choices. But understand this. Learn to love people even when your human instinct tells you not to because love never fails. Learn to not prejudge people because you don't know the whole story. You, you just don't know part of it or piece of it. Learn to love them anyway. God wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit's work is His work, not ours. God wants us to understand that love means that we cover them with that blanket of affection and caring and we step back because truly we can't really change somebody else's life. They have to choose to change. A dear friend of mine many years ago, we grew very close in life. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning author. He was a man who had many ghosts that haunted him. He died in a very precarious way, yet he was a world-renowned author. One evening said this to me, and I'll never forget it because I wrote it down and I walked away from there profoundly affected by what he said, and he said this, Ed Bridges, who was a brilliant man, said to me, the world is not a playground, Jerry. It's a schoolroom. Life is not a holiday or vacation. It's an education. And he said, and the one essential lesson for all of us to learn is how better we can love those round about us and how we can overlook their shortcomings, their brokenness, and their sin. Because after all, that is not our field of expertise. It belongs to God. And I pray that we can understand that and we can let go of the Sabel, the spirit of control. You're having problems in your relationships with your family, with your friends, or with your spouse. Check that out. Because so often, that's a struggle that we have. We say that we know how to love, yet all of us are learning as we go through this life. And we are preparing one day to stand before the God whose name is love. And then we'll fully understand what it's about. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Only you can do. And give us an understanding of what we need to do in our lives. For all of us struggle, Lord. We're, we're broken people. And this world is more broken than ever before. And we listen to many voices that cry out to us in this world of, 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 of so many people giving so much advice that is so useless. May we be still for a moment, isolate those voices, and only hear yours. 
through your Holy Spirit guiding us to truth. Lord, love is the center of what we must do. And in order to love, sometimes first we have to forgive. We have to be forgiven of our sins and we have to forgive others. And sometimes that thing of pride stands in the way. And therefore, love is not something we experience. And Lord, we also realize that control is something that, that we desire because it puts us in the driver's seat. We feel that we should make those choices, but the reality is when we sit in that driver's seat, we refuse to allow your Holy Spirit to guide even, even our lives, let alone the lives of those around about us. Now, Father, I pray for those like myself, who are struggling with that. And I pray that they could find that victory in love where you let go and you trust and you don't allow control to become a part of your life and a part of what you do. Father, speak to someone this morning who's struggling with that, that needs that hope and also needs that help to do what is correct. And Father, if there's one here today that needs to come to you as Savior and Lord. They need to experience sins forgiven. They need to become a Christian, a follower of, of you. Lord, I pray that today would be the day they would encounter that. And if there's one that needs to come and join this church or be baptized or just simply come and pray and come closer to you, may the altar be open and the opportunity be here that they could freely make that step even now as we sing the first words of this invitation hymn. And I pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.